Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series that explores the history of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Each episode, we discuss a five-year period of the journal's history, following its founding from 1966 up until today. This week, we're discussing 1986 to 1990. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. You can listen to this podcast and all the Dialogue Podcast Network shows on a new podcast app called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover and listen to the great educational content that we provide. In Lyceum, you can also support the Dialogue Podcast Network by becoming a member for just $5 a month. Members will get exclusive episodes and the chance to discuss and engage this show with me and other listeners. So go to the App Store or Google Play, download Lyceum, and become a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network today. That's Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M. So I want to set the scene a little bit for this time period and uh, uh, what's going on in the broader world of dialogue uh, that dialogue is situated in in the late 1980s. Of course, it's the end of the Reagan era. AIDS has been ravishing the world. President Benson is the leader of the church, having taken over in 1985. You may recall that he had been a radically conservative for much of his senior leadership, allied with the John Birch Society and segregationists, but he didn't do much of this during his tenure. He does give a To the Mothers of Zion address in 1987, telling women to quit their jobs and come home, so women's issues are still really contentious. We mentioned last time that in 1985, we also have the Mark Hoffman bombings and the discovery of the forgeries that upended church history. The church and historians are still getting into scuffles as they start restricting the faculty of BYU from being allowed to contribute to dialogue and other venues, a decision that thankfully is no longer in effect. In this episode, we're still in the editorship of Linda King Newell and Jackson Newell, but we also transition to the new leadership of the journal from Kay and Ross Peterson. I wanted to also just note that there are the 20th anniversary of dialogue issues that happen during this year. In fact, the entire year is spent dedicated to the 20th anniversary sort of reflections of previous editors. All of the editors talk candidly and tell funny stories and serious stories about their time as editors, much of which we've discussed as we've kind of gone over those uh, periods already. But I want to describe a little bit about how the Newells are thinking about their editorship as they end their period. They describe themselves as the loyal opposition in the church, and this is going to become a key phrase that later church leaders are going to really object to. But there's one fascinating quote from Jackson Newell during this period that I want to read. In the mid-1980s, LDS leaders tried to silence some scholars by interviewing writers and banning speakers, that is, by having church interviews, uh, and sort of uh, which many scholars found intimidating. Their effort had little effect except to splatter bad publicity all over the newspapers. Switching strategies, the church has since cut researchers off from key resources by severely restricting access to the archives. They are also making it difficult for church educators to participate in independent scholarly gatherings like the Mormon History Association's annual convention or the Sunstone Symposium by requiring the use of personal leave time and personal funds to do so. 
When BYU was up for reaccreditation a year or two ago, an internal study reported that no administrators could write for dialogue or read a paper at the Sunstone Theological Symposium. Now, today, many of those restrictions have been overturned, as I noted at the top of the podcast, but it's fascinating to see the ways in which church leaders are starting to try to control the scholars that they increasingly see as out of control. I mentioned that the Petersons, Kay and Ross Peterson, take over in 1988, and just a brief introduction for them. Ross had a PhD in American Studies, and Kay focused on raising their children. Ross was a professor at University of Texas at Arlington originally. They were political liberals going through the tumult of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s who'd found refuge in dialogue. At the end of the 1970s, they moved to New Zealand on a Fulbright. They came back to the United States and moved to Logan, Utah, where Ross was a history professor at Utah State University. A year after taking on Dialogue, they moved the offices of Dialogue from Salt Lake City to their home in Logan. Here's what they said at the beginning of their tenure. We would like to add that Dialogue continues to inspire many seekers. Many of us feel that questioning did not end with Joseph Smith and that we, are all, that we all share responsibility for our own destinies. Consequently, Dialogue provides an outlet for divergent views, new ideas, and different interpretations, as well as constant analysis of those in authority. So we see that they take over this uh, uh, journal in a time period when the church's opposition to the journal and concern about historians and so on was not quite yet at its height, but getting pretty serious. That's the first issue that I want to talk about to sort of set the stage were the increasing conflicts between historians and church leaders. Jackson Newell writes a great essay on this in one of the later issues of their tenure called An Echo from the Foothills to Marshal the Forces of Reason. Here he, here's what he had to say. I offer here a personal response to the increasingly stern demands for conformity and the growing number of disciplinary actions that are being voiced and carried out by our Mormon leadership. Obedience, they frequently admonish us, is the first law of the church. Their concern, it seems, is that Latter-day Saints are being alienated or disillusioned by the surfacing of new primary documents from the very early days of the movement, by the carefully researched histories being written each year by professional historians, both within and without the fold, and by the well-financed and sophisticated attacks of anti-Mormons who seek to undermine the foundations of the church and destroy the faith of its members. My concern is that their response to these conditions, which this essay will examine, itself looms as a grave danger to our traditions, our values, and our doctrines. He documents a number of anti-intellectual moves that the church leaders were taking during this time period, including Elder Oaks in 1985 saying that evil speaking of the Lord's anointed was forbidden, even if it was true. This is the context that we've discussed a little bit in our last episode of these increasing conflicts with church leaders and historians, inquisitions instituted by Packer and others. Here's what else Newell had to say. Perhaps it would be well at this point to examine what is afoot. We are witnessing disturbing efforts to undermine confidence in virtually all unofficial sources of understanding about our past. The work of professional historians, intellectuals, and gender in general, the free press, the free discussion of ideas, and the free access to information. He ends up proposing a retreat between historians and church leaders to work out their differences, to develop avenues for dispute resolution, and so on. Otherwise, he says, it's just going to get worse. And of course, it will. 
to foreshadow the 1990s. I didn't realize how much bad blood had developed in the 1980s between LDS intellectuals and church leaders until going over this period and seeing all of the tensions that they were working out. It was really a tough decade in, in general for uh, the historians, professional historians who were trying to work on uh, LDS history. In this issue, we also see the uh, uh, fascinating um, overview of the an exchange that had happened earlier in 1945. The article is titled A 1945 Perspective, but it's really just a collection of letters back and forth discussing the infamous, the famous quote, when our leaders speak, the thinking has been done. This statement had appeared in a 1945 Ward Teacher's Manual. That was before home teaching. And a Salt Lake City Unitarian minister wrote to George Albert Smith, the president of the church at the time, respectfully saying that he found the assertion, when our leaders speak, the thinking has been done, problematic. And it was a very respectful letter. President Smith then responded, saying that the statement was not prepared by the church leaders and one or more of them inadvertently permitted the paragraph to pass uncensored. By their so doing, not a few members of the church have been upset in their feeling and general authorities have been embarrassed. I am pleased to assure you that you are right in your attitude that the passage quoted does not express the true position of the church. So this quotation of this, uh, when our leaders speak, the thinking had been done, had become a sort of popularized version in even in the 1980s when they were trying to, church leaders were trying to assert their authority and members of the church who wanted to reject the, uh, the findings of the historians in favor of church authority wanted to just basically ignore them. But uh, this 1945 exchange showed that there had been a tradition all the way up to the president of the church, George Albert Smith, in rejecting a kind of authoritarian intellectual perspective. Now, what else is going on between historians and church leaders during this time period? Uh, well, we talked about the ways that anti-Mormonism is alive and well and is drawing on these new Mormon history, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of intellectual practice of history that had been uh, uh, thriving since the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s in the pages of dialogue, uh, among others, um, that anti-Mormons were using this to uh, advance their own agendas. And church leaders saw the ways in which uh, uh, anti-Mormon and uh, Mormon intellectuals might be aligned. But of course, there's also Mark Hoffman, who we mentioned at the top of the story here. Hoffman had forged a bunch of documents that upended the Mormon history world, and the church had purchased some of these, and they became very important in the five-year period before this, from 1980 to 1985, in rewriting Mormon history. There's the Joseph Smith III blessing, the Salamander letter to Martin Harris and others. And when, but when he was discovered, he set off bombs and then accidentally de detonated one on himself. He lived, of course, and was arrested and uh, put into prison in Utah. Um, but the bombs and the uh, the discovery of the forgeries then once again f um, created, I guess we could say, a fraught relationship between professional historians and church leaders who saw uh, themselves as sort of outflanked on on all sides here. So. In 1986, there's a roundtable on the Hoffman forgeries published in Dialogue and what they meant for history, historians, and documentary sellers. There are reflections on how this damaged the document business and really gave a black eye to historians who were not able to detect the forgeries in time to, uh, to stop them. 
course, Hoffman was an incredibly skilled forger, which is, explains partly why uh, uh, it was so hard to catch him. Remember that church leaders were and, and historians were often at loggerheads in these years, so these Hoffman things really just kind of increased tensions once again. There's another interesting fight happening among historians during this period as well. Besides the fights within the, with the church and with Hoffman, new Mormon history, this particular intellectual movement that had, as, as it had come to be known, was getting criticized by some secular scholars as well. And some of the more conservative Mormon scholars were also uh, sort of latching on to those secular critiques. What was this all about? Well, Thomas Alexander writes a defense of the humanistic approach to history in uh, an essay and dialogue called Historiography and the New Mormon History, A Historian's Perspective. Here's what he had to say. As this loose coalition of scholars has continued to produce a body of work, two movements have grown up attacking the new history not only the writing itself, but also the premises underlying such history. One group, whom I might call traditionalists, seem most disturbed by what they erroneously perceive as an attempt to deny the religious aspect of Mormonism and what they rightly see as a retelling of the traditional story in different terms. In contrast, the second group of critics, let's call them secularists, finds that the new Mormon historians fail to write adequate history because they accept in too great degree the perception of actions in times past of their own motivations and actions on the one hand, and because they seem unwilling to totally accept contextual interpretations of events in the Mormon past on the other. There's an interesting exchange then about this particular defense between various professional historians. Gerald Bradford, who later becomes the director of the Maxwell Institute and was well known in Mormon intellectual circles, says that uh, Tom's response falls short. Tom's essay falls short. And uh, but Tom gets really upset about this. There's a sort of nasty exchange. Tom responds. Thomas Alexander responds. I refuse to enter into a discussion with Bradford on this question for a number of reasons. First, I have no interest in further defending myself or my colleagues, either from the assertion or the assumptions that new Mormon history or the way it is written affects presumably undermining the faith of believers. In this connection, I am unwilling to discuss the matter with anyone who assumes that the new Mormon historians deny the sacred character of authentic religious experience. There are also essays by Marvin Hill in these years, The New Mormon History Reassessed, and non-Mormon historian Larry Foster, Lawrence Foster, who also incidentally has an essay in the summer 2020 issue on Joseph Smith. Lewis Midgley then weighs in, in characteristically caustic fashion. The publication of Bradford's essay is an encouraging indication that this may not happen. Uh, that is, uh, that, that uh, there needs to be more inquiry on, into all of this. One would assume that the apologists for revisionist history, that's what he called the new Mormon historians, would welcome a genuinely free and open discussion, especially if the position of their critics is as problematic as has been alleged by Hill and Alexander. So there is growing tension where the historians are really starting to fight amongst themselves with conservative and liberal factions, or we could say conservative and, and sort of mainstream factions uh, really uh, emerging here. 
Now, among all of the issues that people are fighting about in the 1980s is, of course, homosexuality. While gender issues hadn't gone away and race issues had sort of lurked in the background a little bit, homosexuality is picking up as a big issue in part because of the AIDS movement in the 1980s, not AIDS movement, AIDS crisis in the 1980s, the gay rights movement in the 1970s that had sort of laid the stage for bringing these issues to the forefront. And of course, you've also got Carol Lynn Pearson's national bestseller, Goodbye, I Love You, which talks about the death of her ex-husband from AIDS. In the summer 1987 issue, Jan Stout uh, publishes an article, Sin and Sexuality, Psychobiology and the Development of Homosexuality. Stout was a University of Utah professor and psycho uh, of psychology and active in AMCAP, or the Association of Mormon Counselors and Psychologists. He rejected the old learned behavior theories of homosexuality and was leaning toward a neurobiological theory that would challenge the evaluation of homosexuality as immoral and changeable. This essay, this article sparked a lot of commentary. I think there were six or seven letters to the editor over the following year, chastising him for going too far, not going far enough, and so on. Um, people accused him of all sorts of uh, of all sorts of things, like making an argument uh, that homosexuality is morally neutral, and so on. Gene England, of course, the founder of the journal, also responds and has one of the first major responses in the fall 1987 issue, um, saying that we all have our cross, that homosexuality is a cross that some people might bear, but that ultimately we choose our actions, not our desires. Spring 1988 sees another letter taking a different take on Jan Stout's article, and I want to point this out. I suppose it is nice that Dialogue awarded him a prize. He had won an award for the, uh, for the article for bringing its readers information that has long been common fare outside of Mormondom. But somehow the whole enterprise smacks of self-congratulation, something to make liberal Mormons feel less guilty about publicly supporting a church that treats gay people so monstrously while privately wringing their hands and admiring Dr. Stout for doing something. Gay people are not an abstraction. We are real people with a distinguished history living authentic lives. We love, we work, we play, and we contribute enormously to the good of society. But many of us suffer, particularly those gay Mormons who will despise themselves until their homophobic church accepts them. My friend Steve was such a gay Mormon. And trapped by BYU security, he voluntarily, quote unquote, underwent aversion therapy at BYU and was later pressed into marriage by a zealous stake president who convinced him that prayer, laying on of hands, and commitment had cured him. It hadn't. And a few years later, Steve was sexually active with other men, estranged from his wife and children, and overwhelmed by guilt, the product of a good Mormon upbringing that had carefully taught him to hate himself. Despairing, Steve turned to the church for help and was eventually excommunicated by a court of love. Two weeks later, he took his life. This hate makes it impossible for my family to accept both me and the church. It tells me the love I have for my lover is born of sin. It would isolate me from my rich friendships with other gay people. It would excommunicate me for claiming more from life than furtiveness, loneliness, and frustration. And it is this hate that would place church authority between me and God. Maybe Stout, his colleagues, their liberal friends, and perhaps even a few apostles might get it right someday. But how many more Steves 
will there be in the meantime? A powerful indictment of stout and uh, liberal Mormonism from a former Mormon. Others liked it. Stout and Dialogue deserve credit and appreciation for publishing a long overdue essay. This is a core issue and one which demands resolution for upon this issue and in the balance hangs the coherence of either God's or the church's dealings with humans. So we can see that really 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, church members were really wrestling and understood the stakes of the debates about homosexuality. Feminist theology also sees some really interesting developments during this time period. Margaret and Paul Toscano are publishing in the pages of Dialogue. Beyond Matriarchy and Beyond Patriarchy is a classic of speculative feminist theology by Margaret Toscano. There's also some of my favorites from Melody Munch Charles, her essay in the fall 1988 issue, The Need for a New Mormon Heaven. I love this piece. It's one of my favorites as a sort of critique of a traditional understanding of Heavenly Mother, really the first of its kind that I'm aware of. It's one that I've written about in my own uh, historical and, and uh, theological writings on Heavenly Mother, this uh, particular piece by Charles, and talks about how single women, single men, and uh, women in general are not really welcome in the New Mormon Heaven, which is ultimately patriarchal and hierarchical. A number of letters responded to this issue. Melody Charles' plea for a new Mormon heaven was so chock full of personal opinions and typical feminist attitudes that I found it insulting as a scholarly treatise. In the next letter, I want to express my thanks for Melody Munch Charles, the need for new Mormon heaven. She has given voice and form to the questions and problems I am dealing with as I seriously contemplate going to the temple for the first time. Another letter. Personally, I quite enjoy the speculation about Heavenly Mother. I think Melody Charles has every right to project her favorite model of womanhood onto Heavenly Mother, as long as she reserves the same right for others, even those who advocate degrading stay-at-home, in quotes, degrading stay-at-home mothering. One of the reasons that I like Melody Munch Charles so much is that she was also one of the first Latter-day Saints to go to Harvard Divinity School, which is ultimately my alma mater as well. And uh, I just have this great these great visions of of her and uh, so many of her other LDS colleagues who were there in the late 70s and early 80s. Levina Anderson's feminist treatise. The Grammar of Inequality is another one that I think is really ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Here's what she has to say. The scriptures are profoundly exclusionary. It is an agonizing paradox, but the degree to which we love and use the language of scriptures, we also love and use the language of exclusion. This is not my view of God. I feel, the very, I feel to the very depths of my soul that the Savior's mission was to women as well as to men, that our theology embraces a divine couple that the place of the mother in heaven of our mother in heaven is as secure as that of our father in heaven and that a full understanding of godhood will eventually include an understanding of her powers principles and responsibilities i feel that women must be fully included in the gospel of jesus christ not because the scripture uh, the scriptural texts fully include them nor because our theology perfectly includes them but because any other pattern does violence to the fabric of the universe distorting and misshaping the image of God that I strive, however imperfectly, to see and reach toward. When language becomes a veil, masking and disguising God, 
then it is imperative, as a matter of spiritual health, that the language change. I think that the process, though arduous, will be accompanied by joy. We also see some really fascinating treatises on scripture during this time period. I mentioned before that at the end of the 1980 to 1985 period, there was a budding a rivalry developing between George Smith and Farms, uh, among others. Farms was uh, really starting to kind of take off in the early 1980s. And one of the major publications in 1985 of um uh, John Sorensen's An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon is a kind of signal uh, transitional piece during that time period. But there are a bunch of other really important essays on the Book of Mormon that are published in dialogue during these years. One is by Bruce Lindgren, Sign or Scripture Approaches to the Book of Mormon that challenges the entire question of historicity that Book of Mormon interpretation had hinged on and instead says, instead of focusing on whether or not this is a sign of Joseph Smith's prophetic uh, uh, mission or his, or his uh, status as a fraud, we need to instead read what this text actually says as Scripture. It's a foundational piece for non-historical readings of the Book of Mormon. Also, there's another important piece by Blake Osler, a classic, really, Book of Mormon as a modern expansion of an ancient source. Here, he also tries to cut through the Gordian knot of the historicity question by coming up with a hybrid solution. Using source criticism, a method that attempts to separate out distinct underlying sources in a single document, he argued that the plates were real, that the Nephites were real, but that in Joseph Smith's translation, he also drew on his own experience and context to, to lay out the narrative of the Book of Mormon. He suggests that there is a kind of core historicity, but that much of the Book of Mormon may be an expansion of modern expansion from Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's time to, uh, to, to fill out the rest of the story. Besides the Book of Mormon, there are also really important essays on Mormon interpretation of the Bible during this time period. Philip Barlow's Why the King James Version from the Common to the Official Bible of Mormonism comes out in uh, 1988. Barlow's uh, Mormons in the Bible is published that same year. Uh, that's at one of the, his book is a classic book. In the 1950s and then in 1979, official edition of the LDS Scripture, King James Version wins out over other new translations as LDS leaders sided with fundamentalist Christians in opposing modern biblical, biblical studies. There's also a fascinating article here on, um, uh, by uh, Anthony Hutchison on Mormon Midrash that develops a theory of revelation, interpretation, and, uh, uh, and scripture by drawing on the Jewish method of Midrash, a creative narrative expansion of biblical accounts. He attempts to make sense of the expanded creation accounts that cannot be historically reliable in the books of Abraham and Moses, as well as the temple, uh, because of the ways in which they uh, really reshape the biblical story itself. There are also uh, important treatises on the book of Abraham during this time period. In addition to Hutchison's Mormon Midrash, which deals with it, there's also Carl Sandberg's Knowing Brother Joseph Again, the Book of Abraham, and Joseph Smith as Translator. He asked the question, what does it mean to call Joseph Smith a translator when we now know that the Book of Abraham and the papyri on which uh, they, it was based are not the same thing? Sam Brown's new book with Oxford University Press on Joseph Smith as a translator uh, shows that this issue really hasn't gone away. People are still talking about it.
Speaking of translations, Kevin Barney's The Joseph Smith Translation and Ancient Texts of the Bible is one of the first during this time period to also really try to lay out in a systematic way how it is that Joseph Smith was dealing with the biblical text in the Book of Mormon in his translation and asking the question whether or not any of the Joseph Smith translation passages might be um, related to uh, might be related to ancient manuscripts. Speaking of this, Barney has another uh, future commentary on uh, the Joseph Smith translation in 1 Corinthians coming out in dialogue soon. Keep an eye out for that. In addition to all of these fascinating topics during this time period, again, which I just found so fascinating, and I really commend our, to our readers all of the issues, all of these issues during this time period, I want to point out just a few other interesting topics. One is Devery Anderson. We've relied a lot on his research about the history of dialogue published in the early 1990s to tell the story up until now. And so I want to just call attention to it, the winter 1989 issue in which Devery Anderson tells his own story in a letter to the editor of having discovered dialogue while at Rick's in 1985. Finding dialogue was personally fulfilling, but also talking about its contents got him in trouble with a study group he belonged to. Here's what he had to say. Just once, I would like to say to someone, what did you think of Mike Quinn's recent article? Do you agree with Jan Stout's essay on homosexuality? Wasn't David Berger's study of the development of the temple endowment ceremony informative and stimulating? I'd also commend to our, our listeners David Berger's study of the development of the temple endowment during this same time period. Fascinating one. That is the sense that many dialogue readers, when they first discovered it, feel alone, not only before having found dialogue, but even after where they found that they didn't have conversation partners where they could say, what, what do you think about this? I have come to admire and respect those who started dialogue and those who now and in the past have put this journal together for people like me to read and consider. Thank you, dialogue, and may you be around long enough to have a special millennium issue. Right after this, there's a letter from Steve Eccles describing the origins of the Miller Eccles Southern California Study Group as well. Uh, and as and I mentioned also David Berger's The Development of the Mormon Temple Tradition Temple Endowment Ceremony uh, uh, during this time period. There's just so many rich conversations that people are starting to have uh, around topics that really had before felt like they couldn't have an, any conversations about. There's also a little controversy over the three Nephites during this time period that I want to just talk a little bit about. There's a short story by Levi Peterson called The Third Nephite that made a lot of people mad in this, in this time period of dialogue. The Newells said that they received tons of complaint letters, and Levi even had to sort of apologize a little bit about it if anybody was offended. Sort of one of those, I'm sorry if you were offended apologies. But there was another interesting third Nephi. It's funny. You should read it. But there's another interesting three Nephites uh, folklore study done by William Wilson, where he looks at the three Nephites in Mormon culture as a matter of folklore. In the 1990s, we also start to see a couple of really interesting issues on race come up again. In the spring 1990 issue, Jesse Embry, now the editor of Journal of Mormon History, and Mark Grover write some important articles. Jesse Embry um, talks about 
LDS black wards and group segregation versus integrated wards and the history of whether or not there should be separate segregated wards and groups or whether or not integration should be pursued. Anybody who's lived in large cities has had to deal with this problem as ward boundaries are often drawn sometimes around racial and neighborhood lines as well. It, but in any way, in any case, it tells the history of the Genesis group, one of some of these uh, early black congregations. Mark Grover's essay is a really important one because it connects the 1978 priesthood revelation that Spencer W. Kimball had received not to domestic issues in the United States, but rather to the Brazil temple and the problem of racially the racially integrated people of Brazil being able to participate in a segregated church and a segregated temple and suggest that the international context of what was going on in Brazil had as much, if not more, to do with uh, inspiring the need for the revelation. I also want to point out that in 1989, towards the end of our period, George P. Lee is excommunicated, the last major general authority to be excommunicated in LDS history. The previous one was in 1943, when Apostle Richard Lyman was was uh, found to be committing adultery, and uh, he was uh, uh, publicly excommunicated. George P. Lee's excommunication wasn't really explained in 1989, and it left a lot of questions for people, and we see a lot of letters to the editor about this. He was actually quite beloved and well-known in the church as a staunch critic of racism in the church, and many people suspected conflicts between him and Benson on the issues of race. However, People didn't know at the time, though apparently the church did, that he was uh, eventually ultimately convicted of sexually molesting a minor in 1993, an episode which had taken place not long before his excommunication. So we see the ways in which, uh, uh, you know, the, the journal is really kind of reacting to these particular moments in real time. And we can see the ways that uh, members of the church, and especially in these letters to the editor, are talking about them with one another. So that's this time period. I hope that you found it as interesting as I did. I look forward to the next era, 1990 to 1995. Just to preview it a little bit, there are some really more uh, uh, conflicts, of course, between church leaders and dialogue uh, uh, contributors and dialogue editors as we will get into that. The uh, conflicts are not over yet. So stay tuned if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that history. Take care, everybody. Dialogue, 